As you're taking your seats, please uh, turn in your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 3. We'll be starting chapter 3, verse 12, going all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. This is a two-part, second part of um, this particular section in Colossians 3. The section starts at verse 1 in Colossians 3 and goes all the way to verse 6 in chapter 4. So uh, there's a big chunk of, of, uh, of depth here, and we couldn't cover it in one sermon, so I had to split them up. But let's start as we look at uh, this week's passage. We'll start in verse 12. Hear now the reading of God's living an active word. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, would you join me in prayer? Oh God, we ask that you would come and you would be a part of this time as we consider your word, the word that you have given to us, to teach us, to work in our hearts by your spirit, to change us. Help us to see through this passage today how you desire for your family to live together, knowing that even through all of the trials and tribulations of this world, you are with us, you are our God. 
And for that, we praise you, we thank you, and we ask that you would be with us now. Lift all of these things up in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Why does every machine that you buy come with a user manual? Practically, it's so that the company doesn't have to worry about you unwrapping this gizmo and using it, hurting yourself, and suing the company. But uh, ideally, the manual is there to give you an understanding how the product is made, what each of the parts looks like, and what the uses are of this product, how to, how to use it. Well, we recently received a new coffee grinder, and as always, I took it out of the packaging, I set it up, put all the pieces together, turned the knobs, plugged it into the wall, put the coffee grounds in, hit the button, nothing happened. And so I thought uh, maybe I did something wrong, maybe there's an on-off switch that I didn't see, so I checked all around it, turned the knobs again, make sure everything's right, plug it back in, hit the start button, nothing happened. So I decided, you know, maybe something is broken inside. So I took it all apart. I emptied the coffee grounds out, took it apart, made sure all the grinding gears, everything was working in a proper order, put it back together, put the coffee back in, plugged it in, hit the start button, nothing. At that point, I figured this has got to be a manufacturing error, right? At somewhere down the line, something didn't get put in this machine that was supposed to be put in. Uh, we're going to send it back, we'll get a new one, and it'll work. We'll be fine. I was frustrated, I was done, so I stepped away. And Catherine, my wife, who had been standing there in the kitchen the whole time watching me, she came over, she pushed in the little coffee receptacle where all the grounds come out. She pushed it in until it clicked, and then hit the start button. And don't you know, coffee grounds came out. Now, who do you think was standing there reading the manual the whole time? Yes, it was. <laughs> you are right. It was Catherine. Catherine had been standing there watching me the whole time, and she knew exactly how the machine was supposed to work. I think this is a great analogy for our text today because in here we've got a sort of a manual, a sort of an understanding of how we as God's people, as God's family, are supposed to function, where all the pieces go, how they all fit together. God's the one who made us. He knows how we work. So doesn't it make sense to dig into Scripture to see how he describes us, who he says we are, and how we can exist together in his family. When we try to do things on our own, when we try to live according to our own designs, things may bumble along, but they never work quite right. So we're looking at portions of Colossians chapter three and four today in this kind of view of looking at what God has to say about us. We've already read Colossians three twelve through 17 before, as I mentioned. But it's important, this context, the, the chapter, is all of it's important for what we see today. So as we primarily focus on uh, verses 18 through the beginning of chapter 4, verse 6, we'll see God's design for us, how we are to live as individuals and how we're to live in this family of God. 
We'll divide this out into three points this morning. First, the essence of God's family. Second, the work of God's family. And third, the purpose of God's family. Through these points, we'll hopefully see that because God has made us a new creation and and has given us a new identity in Christ, that we are now members of his family and we are powerfully different in our relationships than we used to be. So let's look first at the essence of God's family. Who you are shapes what you do. And I'm not saying this in a deterministic way, as in you don't really have a choice in what you do every day, but rather I'm I'm talking about how our identity and our history shapes who we are, what we do on a day-to-day basis. In a biblical sense, it's not what goes into the mouth of a person that defiles a person, but what comes out of his mouth, this defiles a person. Those words are from Jesus in Matthew 15. And what he's saying there is that our actions and our words and our thoughts are produced out of our hearts, out of who we are. Think about DNA. All that information stored up in your cells, your DNA describes you. It gives meaning to what your hair color is, what your eye color might be your height, your aptitudes, even things like your personality and the way you interact with the world are somewhat uh, have to do with the way that your body fits together, all this information in your DNA. But we also have not only a physical DNA, but a spiritual DNA. We have a nature, a, a spiritual description of who we are. Prior to knowing God and believing in Jesus as our Savior, that nature is a nature of death. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul continues, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So if you believe in Jesus, you have a new nature. You have this new spiritual DNA, a new nature of life. And in this letter to the Colossians, Paul speaks again of of this new nature, reminding the Colossians We no longer live according to our flesh, but are now filled in Christ, having been raised with him, having been forgiven of all of our trespasses. We cannot ignore that reality. If we were to dive into verses 18 and following without first considering this context, it'd be really easy for us to read those verbs, submit, love, obey, etc., as chores or duties, burdens. I suspect that even with a little bit of context that we've already read, in verses 12 through 17, which speaks of putting on that new nature, I suspect that many of us are still feeling a bit uneasy about this passage. Sometimes the topics of submission, obedience, power, and authority are difficult to work through. On top of that, we live in a culture that wants to erase, eradicate 
all kinds of distinctions, wanting to get rid of the distinction between men and women or between social roles. On the other hand, we could also point to many historical figures who have abused these scripture passages to subject women and children, those with little to no power, to all kinds of atrocities. So it's good to be careful as we examine this text this morning to, again, patiently test all things according to the whole word of God. Context is so important for things like this. We have to understand where we are. So that's what we're doing. Part of that is looking at the the whole letter of Colossians. Uh, This is a letter. It was written to a church to be read as as a whole. It would have been read before the people. It is just one chunk of scripture. And they would have heard the beginning with the end. So what does Paul say in this letter? We've heard it before. It's been a while. But Paul starts in chapter 1. He reminds the Colossians of who they are, their identity, secure in the gospel. He reminds them that their Savior was the, is the image of the invisible God, the one who created the universe, the one who has saved them by shedding his own blood. He reminded them that Jesus counts our suffering for the gospel as his own. And indeed, Paul himself had suffered much on their account. And at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul reminded them that they have a new life in Christ. They, that life flows out of Jesus' victory. We are to take off the old corrupted self and put on the new self, which is characterized by the love with which God has loved us. So in light of all of this, in light of this context, who are you? Are you still struggling through life, grasping at temporary solutions to your desires, or are you resting in the gifts that God lovingly bestows upon his children, his family? Dr. Kurt Thompson, uh, he's somewhat of a theologian and doctor. He specializes in interpersonal neurobiology, which is a fancy word of saying how our minds and uh, relationships interact with one another. And he brings all of this back to the context of the gospel of Scripture. He's written a couple of books which dive deep into these subjects. And one of the things that I find helpful is that he compares who we are pretend to be who we think we are with who we really are in Christ. He lists four things, four desires that we often find ourselves chasing after. These are the desire to be seen, to be soothed, to be safe, and to be secure. We're tempted when we don't find our rest and identity in Christ to run after these things on our own power. But we know that all of these things are really fulfilled in what Christ has done for us. To be seen is, uh, think of it in the same way, you know that phrase, fully known and fully loved. Right? To be seen is to have someone know you, to know your deepest secrets and still desire to have a relationship with you. To be soothed is to have that answer, that, that answer deep in your heart 
to all of the trials and suffering in this world, to know that everything will be okay, even if it's very much not okay right now. We need to know that there is a hope and that God will, can and will, make everything right. That's to be soothed. To be safe is ultimately to know that we will be rescued, that we'll be saved from our sins. But there are many other smaller ways that we need to be safe. All of them come back to the sovereignty of God. If we believe that God is really sovereign and good, then we can believe that we are safe. And finally, to be secure is to know that none of those needs and desires that we have in Christ, that, we are, that are fulfilled in Christ, can ever be lost. We are secure. We know that God loves us fully, but also that nothing can change that love. Nothing can uh, separate us from the love of God. We are his forever. We are his family because he has made us family through the blood of our Savior. That is an eternal payment. Alas, too often we act as if we are not who God says we are. I think of the book, uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Horse and His Boy, part of the Narnia series. One of the main characters, Shasta, grows up believing that he's the son of a poor fisherman. And even his dad, his supposed father, doesn't love him like a father should. So he's in this kind of horrible stage in his life where he is at the lowest of the lows. However, as the book progresses and as Shasta journeys towards hope and freedom, he slowly uncovers who he really is. I don't want to spoil it for any of the kids who haven't read that book yet, but I think you can understand where this is going. He realizes that he is much greater than who he thought he was. He's not this poor fisherman boy, but his identity is much greater. He was not living in a life that reflected his true identity. But let's bring it back to us. What, what is your identity in Christ? Are you seen, soothed, safe, and secure, really and truly? If you belong to God's family, if you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, then you are. You are seen, soothed, safe, and secure. Our feelings, words, and actions often betray that we do not fully believe this sometimes. Oftentimes. Often we act as if we have something to prove or something to earn, but Jesus has already fulfilled the deepest needs of your soul. It's out of the abundance of God's grace towards us that we can then love and serve those around us. So knowing our spiritual DNA and the essence of who we are in Christ, let's look then at what God desires us to do. Let's look at the second point, the work of God's family. We'll be looking at these verses 18 and following. All, all of these point to the roles in the family. In, in all families, there are different kinds of roles that a person might fill. You might be the oldest or youngest sibling or somewhere in between. 
You might be the main provider or co-provider of the family's resources. Even in the family of God, we have different roles. The church is described as having hands and feet, eyes, mouths. We also have nuclear families within the broader family of God. These distinctions are good. They help us to understand who we are in light of God's design, our purpose within the family. They also help us to understand how we need others in the family, how those around us are important and vital for us. Uh, I like to say whenever we have a new members class that God has brought each and every one of our members to Forest Gate because we need them. There's not a single person here at Forest Gate that God has brought whom we don't need. We need everyone. Paul talks about the many roles within the larger body of Christ in many places throughout his letters. But here he focuses on just three pairs of relationships, three relational pairs. Perhaps these were especially uh, important, especially challenging for the Colossian church. Perhaps uh, knowing human nature, perhaps these relationships are just some of the hardest ones. So it's good for us, certainly worth our time to study and understand what God's desire is for these relationships. So let's look at that first relational pair, pair here in Colossians 3, verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Two concise requirements but certainly is not simple ones. Again, if you're not a Christian and, and you're hearing these words, if you haven't tasted the grace of God and the value that he gives you, you may be offended by this. What kind of religion demands that wives be subjective, submissive to their husbands? Doesn't that make for abusive relationships? Well, part of the, the difficulty when we hear that word, submit, that verb, well, sounds to us like a value judgment. We often uh, import value when somebody is subject and somebody is over another. We tend to hear that and assume that Paul is saying that women are inferior to men, that they ought to be ruled by men. This is not the case. Matt will teach more in the next couple of weeks uh, on Ephesians 5 as we're going through that. But Paul actually teaches us that we ought to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. This kind of submitting to one another cannot, therefore, import a value judgment. You cannot, after all, have two things that are both equal and not equal. And now, what, what about who we are in Christ? What does that add to this idea of value? Remember, we are safe in Christ. We are secured by his blood. Is there anything that could give you a greater value than to be bought with the blood of Jesus? No, submitting ourselves is not devaluing ourselves, but rather it is an act of loving another. 
When a wife submits herself to her husband in Christ, she is doing so as an act of love, as an act of reflection of Christ. She's doing so as someone who is seen, soothed, safe, and secure. She isn't submitting to earn or to gain anything because she already has all that she needs in knowing and being known by her Savior. You see, this is the difference between godly relationships and those without God at their center. In our world, relationships are a status quo, a give and take. You give me something of value, and I give you something of value. And if you're not willing to give me something of value, or if I have a fear that you won't be willing, I might be hesitant or even hostile. Not so in Christ. In Christ, we don't have to focus on the give and take. It's not as if we're trying to even out power or value. What we're doing so, we're engaging in that relationship to love one another. Del Tackett uh, summarizes this kind of love in his engagement project. He says, this is a steadfast and sacrificial zeal that seeks the true good of the one who lives near you. Love is a steadfast, sacrificial zeal that seeks the true good of the one who lives near you. There's a lot in there, but I think it's very accurate to what this kind of love is. And this is what Paul is calling us to. When he says, wives, submit to your husbands, he's calling you to lift up your husband in a steadfast and sacrificial way. Not for his pride, but for his good to help him to be the head and the leader of the family in the same way that Christ is the head and the leader of the church. This is why Paul says, submit as is fitting in the Lord. Paul wants us to leave behind the give and the take of broken relationships and serve one another as is fitting, or as Jesus, who is our Lord, has loved and served us. So at the same time, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh or bitter with them. It's interesting how Paul exhorts husbands differently than their wives. In one sense, both submitting and loving are universal commands. They're commands to both men and women. You should love and submit to one another. And yet it's not irrelevant that Paul chooses an emotive word, love this steadfast and sacrificial zeal that seeks the true good of another is also a sign of gentleness, of care, and devotion. Husbands, we cannot love our wives and not care or be devoted to them. We cannot love them and be harsh with them. It's what Paul says, that, that word harsh comes from uh, the idea of something bitter, or something poisonous. We cannot be both sacrificial and poisonous to our wife. Again, husbands must love their wives out of their identity in Christ, being seen, soothed, safe, and secure. A wife is not a husband's personal self-esteem booster, nor is she an employee to direct, but she is to be served in the same way lifting her up and promoting her godliness 
and holiness. And the beautiful thing is when both husband and wife are working together out of their identity in Christ, each in their own roles, when they do this, there's no need to seek out your own personal desires or fulfillment. But as each serves the other, we are united in service and love. So that's the first relational pair between wife and husband. The second relational pair is between children and fathers. And really, the idea here is not just between fathers and their children, but this idea of authority, right? So yes, mothers, parents, this is all included in this. But Paul does speak in this way, speaks to fathers. He is speaking to this parental relationship of authority and child. So we read in verses 20 to 21, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Don't you find it interesting that Paul here talks to the children at Colossae? It's a great example that Christianity isn't an individual's religion or even a religion of adults. This is a covenantal, a family uh, religion. This is God bringing all his people in, no matter what their age. Paul talks specifically to the children. So kids, I'm going to talk to you today too. Listen what the apostle Paul wants you to know. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Kids, you know when you go outside and you play in the snow and your coat gets all wet and dirty, your gloves get wet and dirty, you take them off and your pants are soaked, your socks are soaked, right? You gotta change, otherwise you feel yucky. You don't wanna be walking through the house tracking that stinky, sweaty water all over the floor, You're going to get yelled at if you do that. In the same way, Paul is saying, God has given you new clothes to put on. Your old clothes are the clothes of sin, of shame. But these new clothes that God gives you, they're clothes of love, patience, kindness, all the things that make you look like Jesus. So why does Paul want you to obey your parents? Well, because they know how to get dressed. They've been doing it for a long time, right? If you ask your parents, how do I get this shirt on? How do I get this jacket on? They should know how to get dressed. Well, in the same way, hopefully our parents also know how to put on our clean clothes in Jesus. And God loves you so much. He loves it when parents and children together are loving each other and and following him together. That's why he says this pleases the Lord when you obey. But kids, listen, he has a word for your parents as well, for the fathers. He says, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, has anyone ever gotten their head stuck in their shirt when they're trying to put it on? Maybe you, you've got it stuck in, yep, maybe you've got it stuck in your sleeve. And you're trying to get it on, and it's frustrating. Kids, you might have had, had this happen. But how much harder is it if you have someone who is there, who knows how to get dressed, 
and who isn't helping you but is angry with you, frustrated with you not being able to put your shirt on. We're late, we need to go. Why can't you get your shirt on? I know that would make me feel sad. God wants parents to be patient with their kids, not just when they're putting their clothes on each morning, but especially when they're learning how to love and be kind and be patient. God doesn't want any of his children getting discouraged as they grow and learn how to wear their new clothes in Jesus. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. Kids, I want you to hear that. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. Even when we struggle with some, something, trying to do what is right, God's love is never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever. So that's the second relational pair between fathers and their children. The third relational pair is between servants and masters. Paul says, verses 22 to uh, the first verse in chapter 4, he says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Bondservants, or dulies, these are servants. You might know that word, duly. Uh, duly is just a translation of what this is. It's a servant. In one sense, this could be applied narrowly to those who are slaves, but I think it's also very appropriately applied to anyone who is under authority. If you have a boss in any situation, these verses are for your benefit. Again, the temptation is when we are under authority. It's for us to think that we have to earn our standing before God or before man. It's so easy for us to feel like we have to give more than we can give or to even act in devious ways to try to achieve our goal. But Christian, we have the opportunity to work as one who already has the full approval and blessing of God. Even in our work, we are seen, soothed, safe, and secure. There's nothing, out that, nothing that our earthly masters could do that is outside of the hands of God. In the same way, masters, bosses, leaders, anyone who has that authority, this warning, the, the, this warning that is for the masters may be the most stark one yet. After just reminding the servants that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and that there is no partiality, Paul then says, you too have a heavenly master. Even those who are in leadership have authority over them. It is the divine authority. You have the ability as masters, as leaders, as bosses in Christ to also live out of being seen, soothed, safe, and secure. 
Our world says that if, if you have power, you have, you have to maintain that at all costs. If you have power, there's always going to be somebody out to get you. But in Christ, we are secure. We don't have to worry about the rise and fall of powers because Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So masters, be fair, be just, be Christ-like to those under your authority. That's the third relational pair between servant and master. But what's the point of all of this? Why does Paul care so much about how the family of God relates to one another? Doesn't Paul know that even if we try our hardest, even if we pour our lives into these relationships, our relationships are still going to be broken? Doesn't he know that some of us long for these kinds of relationships, longing for a godly spouse or a child who walks with God? Doesn't he know that no matter how hard we try in all of our relationships, we still won't be able to have those perfect relationships with one another? What's the purpose behind all of this? This leads us to our third point this morning. What is the purpose of living together as God's family? Well, we'll be shorter with this one. I just have two things. There's a lot more we could say about the purpose of living together as God's family. But just two to highlight. The first purpose is that, yes, Paul does know that we aren't going to have perfect relationships. And yet, there is hope. Paul wants us to know that hope. The, the second Purpose is that through living as God's family, we who have life, who are in Christ, are a witness and a grace to those who do not yet believe. Through our relationships, we may yet bring the word of life to those who are still dead in their sins. So, looking at these deeper, where, where is the hope when our relationships break? When we don't have those relationships that reflect this kind of love and service and care. After all, abusive power does exist. The oppression of the weak is never proved by God. There are, in fact, many ways that submitting, obeying, and acting in these ways cannot be godly. If we're trying to do all these things in order to gain some kind of approval from God. It's a denial of the perfect word of, work of Jesus on your behalf. If you're doing all these things to try to achieve some sort of standing with man, it's idolatry, construction of our own kingdoms. So how does Paul give us hope in the light of everything that could go wrong and often does go wrong? Here, Again, from Scripture, Paul continues on in verse 2 of chapter 4. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Think back. Uh, it's been a while, but think back to Colossians 1. If you want to even turn there, you can. 
verses three through five. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And that sound familiar, those two verses echoing one another. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's the same thing he said in chapter one. He continues on, chapter one. We thank God for you since we heard of our faith, uh, heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Paul is just telling the gospels Uh, telling the Colossians to do what he has been doing for them all this time, praying for them, lifting them up to God in thanksgiving because of the hope that they share, the hope of the gospel. You see, the gospel is all about reconciliation. When we consider the broken relationships in our lives, we have to turn to the gospel. The gospel is about the bridegroom who loved his bride so much, even though she betrayed him, even though she ran away and became an adulteress. The gospel is about a father who wanted to love his son, wanted his son to follow him, and yet that son would not follow. What did God do? Well, hear God's heart in Jeremiah 3, verses 19 through 20 hear how this relationship is broken. He said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. God knows what it's like to feel betrayal and that sickening pain of rejected love. And yet God took all of that betrayal, adultery, treason, and he gave us Jesus. And Jesus, even as he endured mockery, insult, and rejection from his own people, he set his face to the cross, and he paid the price with his own blood to ransom you and me, to reconcile us, to heal the relationship that we broke with God. Let me tell you, if you are sitting here this morning and don't know this kind of love, what else are you waiting for? He's the only one that can answer the deepest needs of your soul. So even when our relationships are broken, even if those relationships never fulfill our hopes to be loved and known, Our hope is laid up in heaven with Jesus. He loves you. He loves you so much. The second purpose, and we'll close with this, is that the way we love others becomes a witness to those around us, those who are still in darkness and sin. Paul says in verses three to six, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We are God's family. 
We can live our lives each day knowing that we are seen, soothed, safe, and secure. That's, that's our DNA. That's our spiritual DNA. And as sons and daughters of God, we reflect his attributes, his beauty, his goodness, his glory. We reflect those to those around us. Let us pray that we too may have the grace to speak the good news when those doors are opened in our lives. Let us walk in wisdom, taking every opportunity to shine forth the gospel, which is our heavenly hope. Let us let our words always be gracious, giving people a taste of the goodness and the wholeness that God has given to us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for these blessings, that you would work in us, through us, give us those opportunities to speak and to show forth the grace by our actions, by our words, by living as your people. Help us to rest in what you have done for us, knowing that we are safe and soothed, secure, that you see us and love us. God, be with us and send us out as your people into the dark world to bring forth your light, which is the light and hope of our lives. We pray all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.